invite you to join me this evening in Daniel 8, if you are not there already. Daniel 8. In your bulletin, the title of the sermon for this evening is The Ram and the Goat. The more I studied this passage, I kind of altered it. The Ram, the Goat, and then I added this last part, and the greatness of God. Because the chapter is not complete without that last part. The Ram, the Goat, and the greatness of God. Daniel 8. 1 to 27. Let's open with a word of prayer before we jump in. Heavenly Father, this evening we join our voices with heaven to proclaim that you alone are worthy. You are holy, holy, holy. And even as we confess these truths in song and even now in prayer, We were reminded of the reality of our unworthiness and how unholy and unrighteous we are and how utterly undeserving we are. And yet you love us. And yet you sent your son to die for us. And yet you hear us. You sustain us, you keep us, you give us grace and new mercy each morning. Truly, you are a good God, and you are worthy. And I pray even this evening as we look at this passage that we would see your sovereign hand, that in every moment, in every circumstance, even in difficult circumstances, even in difficult times, in both the shadow and the sunshine, that you are still good, that you still rule and you still reign, and that you are still working all things for our good and for your glory. Open our eyes to that reality this evening. Encourage us through your word. Challenge us to be more faithful. Give us an eternal perspective. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's been a while since we've been in Daniel, uh, and then it'll be a couple weeks still because we'll be in Daniel tonight, and then uh, next week we have a missionary, uh, and then I think we have maybe a week in Daniel, or maybe it's the beginning of the month, and we'll be, I can't remember. Um, but we're slowly but surely working our way through Daniel, and this evening we come back to Daniel 8. It's been several weeks since we've been here. So I kind of want to set the stage for you, remind you of where we are at in the book of Daniel. We're kind of at a transition point here in Daniel 8. In fact, it's a, it's a clear transition point in the book. It's a, you may remember back in Daniel 2 as we talked about the, the language of the book and how the first chapter is written in Hebrew and then it shifts um, to um, Aramaic, my mind completely blank there, shifts to Aramaic in chapters 2 through 7, and as we come to chapter 8, it shifts back to Hebrew. There's a reason for that. It follows the flow of the book. Chapter 1 kind of sets the stage. And then chapters 2 through 7 kind of deals with the world stage. Specifically, as you get to chapter 7, you kind of, you back up and God gives Daniel a view of history. From the beginning to the end, all nations, God reigns. 
He will conquer. In the end, God wins. And then you come to chapter 8. It's as if there's a, a shift in the book as it comes back to Hebrew. And, and it's as if what, what God is doing here is he takes this big concept. Look at what I do in history. And then with chapters 8, 9, 10, uh, through 11 and 12, he, he zooms in for Daniel. And takes this big concept that we've seen on, on this grand scale of history. And, and he's still working in history. But he says, now this is what this means for Israel. This is how it applies specifically, Daniel, to you and to my people. And so we have this change in language. And we're still, still dealing, specifically for Daniel here, he's dealing with still things 400 years in the future in this chapter. But it's more focused on this is what I'm doing with my people. This is history, chapters 1 through 7. This is how great I am. I rule and I reign and I will conquer. And in the end, I will win. Now chapters 8 kind of focuses in. This is how it applies to my people, Daniel. So as you work your way through this, we'll see the vision itself in verses 1 to 14, and then the meaning of Daniel's vision in verses 15 to 27. There's a lot of overlap between these two points. Um, but the first thing is the vision, verses 1 to 14. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. All right, so you may remember King Belshazzar from Daniel 5. He's the one with the writing on the wall. He falls down dead the night that, or he is, he is killed the night that um, Babylon is conquered. As we come to chapter 8, we're jumping in front of chapter 5 in history. All right, so this happens before Babylon falls, several years before Babylon falls. In fact, both chapters 7 and 8 happen chronologically before chapter 5. All right, so in chapter 7, Daniel has this vision. Now as we come to chapter 8, we're two years after the first vision that was in Daniel 7. So that one dealt with all of history as you come to Daniel 8. Now it's zooming in. This is two years later. I saw all the vision and it happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. Shushan, that might be a city that you recognize. Uh, specifically, a few years ago, we went through the book of Esther. Esther takes place mostly in Shushan and Susa. It is the capital city of Persia. And yet, at this point in history, as Daniel is writing this, it's, it's not a special city. At this point in history, in Daniel chapter 8, Persia is not that powerful. They have not yet risen up. And so this is just another city. And Daniel finds himself here in this vision. And, and it's almost like, well, what am I doing here? It's nothing special, but it will become the pow powerful capital of a powerful empire. In fact, that's what you see in this very chapter. It's the province of Elam. I saw in the vision that I was by the river Yalai. 
And I lifted my eyes and saw there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns and which had two horns and the two horns were high but the one was higher than the other and the other one came up last. If you've been following along in the book of Daniel this picture of two horns of one higher than the other should immediately grab your attention. Okay, that has to be Medo-Persia. These two empires that are combined with the one is greater than the other. In fact, later on in Daniel 8, uh, verse 20, that's exactly who this ram is. It's the Medo-Persia Empire. So I saw this ram pushing westward, northward, southward, so that no animal could withstand him. As Daniel's looking, this empire represented by this animal is expanding its borders. No animal, no rival nations could stand against it. It's a powerful nation. John Walvoord, in his uh, commentary, he notes, although Persia did expand to the east, its principal movement was to the west, north, and south. And he goes on to note how incredibly accurate several of the, the prophecies here are. And we expect that, do we not? It's not a surprise to us that this is accurate. But he goes on to note how awkward it makes it for those who don't believe that the Scripture is the Word of God like we do. It's incredibly accurate. This is exactly what happened with the Persia, uh, Medo-Persia Empire. Nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. He did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Later on in this chapter, we'll come to see that this male goat is Greece under Alexander the Great. In the context of Daniel, we're dealing with two of the same nations from Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 and from Daniel's dream in chapter 7. Of the four nations, we're dealing with the middle two here. Nation 2 and Nation 3. Medo-Persia and Greece. Without touching the ground shows the speed with which Alexander moved and conquered. Well noted in history. The goat had a notable horn between his eyes. One horn that is Alexander. And then he came to the ram and had two, which had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, ran at him with furious power. Saw him confronting the ram, and he was moved with rage against him again. This is historically accurate. There's a fierce hatred by the Greeks for the Persians who had attacked them. There's a rivalry here. When you come to the end of uh, verse 7, there was no power in the ram to withstand him, but cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Greece crushingly defeats Persia in 331 B.C. Again, this is all future to Daniel. Verse 8, therefore the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. Again, historically accurate as Alexander the Great rises to power and conquers most of the known world and then has an untimely death at 33 years old when his nation is at the height of strength. And in place of this horn, four notable ones came up. 
toward the four winds of heaven. To the west, you have Cassandor, who takes Macedonia and Greece. To the north, you have Lysicomus, who takes thrice Bithynia and most of Asia Minor. To the east, you have Seleucus, who takes Syria and Babylon. To the south, you have Ptolemy, who takes Egypt and Arabia. We know this from history as Alexander's kingdom is is split between these four. And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land that is Israel. If you remember several weeks ago when we were in Daniel 7, that language of a little horn will catch your attention. All throughout Daniel 7, there's the talk of this little horn. And we come to see on the grand scale of things, as you're looking at history, all the way to the end, this little horn that rises out of uh, the renewed Roman Empire is the Antichrist. Here we see another little horn. This one rises out of the third nation. It rises out of this Greek empire, which is split into four. It rises specifically from the Seleucus Empire. There's clearly a connection here. It grew exceedingly great toward the south or the east and toward the glorious land, toward Israel. Remember Daniel's focus here, this vision, the focus of this vision is zeroing in on Israel. What does this mean? And it grew up to the host of heaven, God's people, and cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down because of transgressions. An army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. That last phrase there is shocking. This little horn is is rising up against God's people. The host of heaven, in fact, it goes on there, some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. It seems that this is a reference to the people of Judah, to God's people. Referring back to even Genesis 22, 17, when God promises to make his people as the stars of heaven. Some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He conquers God's people. He casts them down. He tramples over them. In fact, he exalts himself as high as the prince of the host, God himself. Historically, we know who this individual is. The individual that is being referenced here in Daniel 8 is Antiochus Epiphanes. He rose up out of the Seleucid Empire. He opposed God's people. He blasphemed God. He stopped the sacrifices. He desecrated the temple. He lifted himself to the place of God. There's a couple surprising points in here. first is this, number 12, or number 12, in verse 12, 
Note that phrase, because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. Because of transgression. This seems to be a punishment for God's people. Think about that. God's unfaithful people are being punished and God is using a nation. That is far more guilty. And then there's this last phrase. And he cast truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. He prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking to another holy one. These two angels are conversing, said to the one who's speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices, the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host of the trampled underfoot? How long will evil triumph? And he said to me, for 2,300 days. Note this. It's a long time, it's over six years, but his days are numbered. He will rise up, he will oppose God's people, he will blaspheme God, he will stop the sacrifices, he will cast truth down to the ground, he will desecrate the temple, but his days are numbered, and the sanctuary shall be cleansed. His wrongs will be righted. It will be cleansed. This is the vision that Daniel has. And you see the meaning in verses 15 to 27. It happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice behind the banks of the Eli who called and said, Gabriel, Make this man understand the vision. Here in Daniel 8, 16, this is the first mention of an angel by name in the Bible, Gabriel. Gabriel is sent by God to, to, to give an answer to Daniel. Help him understand. He came near where I stood, and when he came near, I was afraid and fell to my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that this vision refers to the time of the end. This references the time of the end. It's an interesting phrase, the time of the end. What, what end are they talking about here? In fact, he'll go on to explain in verses 18 and following how this is specifically tied to a time in history. So how can this be tied to the end? I think that's where we have to come to understand what is going on here. It's tied to the end in two senses. First, it's the end of this period in history in which this is happening. This will happen towards the end of this period of history as these nations rise up. But it will mirror the end of time, what we saw in chapter 7. As if it looks forward to something else as well. And 
And as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright, and he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the later time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. Note there again, at the appointed time. His days are numbered. Even as all this happens, as Antiochus Epiphanes will, will come in and he will sacrifice a pig on God's altar to Zeus. He will stop all sacrifices, keeping God's people from worship. Even in all of that, God has not lost control. Even in all of that, his days are numbered. There is a specific time when the end shall be, and there is nothing that can keep it from coming. God knows what he is doing. And the ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. Here he's explaining exactly what we've already seen, uh, kind of walked through the first part. He's identifying very clearly for Daniel who these are, it's the kings of Media and Persia. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is its first king, who we now know is Alexander. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in his place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, in this period of history, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. In the context of Daniel 8, he is now going into more detail regarding Antiochus Epiphanes, specifically who we come to know as Antiochus Epiphanes. And yet, if you're paying attention at the same time as he is describing this wicked man, you will notice similarities to the little horn that will rise up at the end times that we saw in Daniel 7. You will notice many similarities. He understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. There's a hint there that behind him there's satanic power. He shall destroy fearfully. He shall prosper and thrive. Again, a shocking reality. How can this wicked man thrive? But God knows what he's doing. He shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people, God's people, the Jewish people. Through his cunning, he shall cause the seat to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, God himself. But he shall be broken without human means. God will bring him down. Again, we see the same reality we've seen all throughout this chapter, that his days are numbered. Even in all of his wickedness, even in his reigning and his ruling and all of the wicked things that he does, even in that, God still rules. He has not lost control, and his days are numbered. In fact, we know that Antiochus died suddenly of a disease in 164 B.C. It was not in battle or assassination. Verse 26, And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Seal it up is not the idea to hide it, but to save it. Set it aside and remember it. 
forth from many days from now. In fact, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes would not rise till some 400 years in the future from when Daniel is, is writing this, is seeing this. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. As he sees what lays ahead for his people. But I love this last part. Afterwards, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. After seeing the future and not really understanding it, Daniel is faithful in the present. I fainted with sick for days, but afterwards I rose and went about the king's business. He's faithful in the present. He saw the future but he was faithful in the present, even though it is a terrible vision, even though it means very bad things for his people. He goes about his business. He's faithful in the present because he trusts that God knows what he's doing because he sees that through this all, God will still triumph. And, and I think that's why chapter 7, it's important that that comes before chapter 8. Because Daniel sees, he knows the end of the story. I know that at the end, God will triumph. I know that at the end, this little horn that has power will be cast down. And even though I'm now getting this little slice of history and I see how it's going to affect my nation and what God is going to do with his people... Even in that, I see hints of God's sovereignty throughout all of it. He knows his days are numbered. And, and even at the end of that, God will triumph. He will triumph against this little horn that rises out of this Greek empire. And he will triumph against the little horn that will rise in the last days out of the renewed Roman empire. Regardless of who rises up, God will triumph and brothers and sisters that is good news for you and for me Daniel 8 doesn't involve our people right we're not part of this nation these are all things that have already happened but what it does is it shows us our God's power our God's wisdom our God's greatness Next to this ram and this goat, we see the greatness of our God. In history, as he triumphs, as at the end of all of this, this little horn, who we later find out to be Antiochus Epiphanes, will be cast down, and in the end, who is left? God. Your God. Our God. He reigns. He rules. And so what does a chapter like this? How do we respond to something like this? Well, number one, it should cause us to trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. We're looking at a small slice in history. Daniel's looking at it from the backside. It's not yet come. We're looking at it. Uh, or he's looking at it from the front side. Anyways, it hasn't come yet during Daniel's life. It's come during our life. 
We're looking back on it. He's looking ahead to it. And either way, what happens in the end? God triumphs. We've seen that as we see this little slice of history. And that gives us hope for the future. Because there is another little horn that will rise up. There are times of persecution that is coming. And yet in the end, our God triumphs. And so trust him. And because you trust him in the present, be faithful. I love that last verse as Daniel is is troubled by this. I mean, he is sick for days and he doesn't really understand it. And yet what does he do? He gets up and he goes to work. He's faithful. He's faithful. Why? Well, we know it's not because he understands it or can really wrap his mind around it. In fact, we're told he doesn't. It's because he trusts his God. I don't understand it. I see it. I don't understand it. But this I do understand. That my God is good. That my God rules and he reigns. And his purposes will be accomplished. And he will fulfill all the promises that he has given his people. That's what I know. Therefore, I'll be faithful. Trust the Lord. Be faithful. And secondly, a passage like this should lead us to worship. As we see God's greatness, as we see his hand specifically in history. And what he has done, we have the privilege of looking back on that. And of seeing how God used that and what God did through that. And it should cause us to worship the Lord because our God is stronger. Our God is great. He does rule. He does accomplish his purposes. He does fulfill all of his promises to his people. So trust the Lord. Be faithful in the present and worship him. Lift his name. Proclaim loudly who he is for he is worthy. He's the conquering king. He's our faithful God. He's the king of all history. The God of the universe. And he is worthy. We're going to close by singing a song that we sang at the beginning this this evening. Psalm 86, God of the Ages.